There are so many perspectives and lenses through which to look at the Christmas story through. So for example, um, we could teach on the Christmas story from the perspective of Zechariah and Elizabeth. We could look at the Christmas story from the perspective of um, Mary and Joseph. We could look at the Christmas story from the perspective of the shepherds, right? We could look at the Christmas story maybe from the perspective of God himself as he um, orchestrates this master genius plan in space, time, and history. I think there's, there's a forgotten group, we'll call them sentient conscious beings, that oftentimes we just see as a backdrop to the, creation, to the, to the narrative of the birth of Jesus, the nativity, the advent. And what I want to do is, is bring them front and center this morning. And this group of beings, I want to look at the nativity through their eyes, are the angels of God. And I think in order to do this, we need to go back in time a few millennia before Jesus Christ was incarnate, before he was born, and we need to go back to the creation account. Um, you may not know this, but scriptures teach that as Jesus Christ was forming and shaping the world, that the angels were actually there. And so I want you to imagine with me for a moment. You are an angelic being, and you have a front row seat to Jesus Christ speaking, and as he speaks, formless, shapeless matter begins to take form, and out of this chaos and disorder, um, order and beauty emerge. Uh, I want you to imagine that you get a front row seat to this, and, and, and actually the book of Job, verse 38, tells us the response of the angels to God's power uh, in creation. In fact, Job 38 verse 3, I'll put it on the screen for you. Uh, God is actually rebuking Job, and here's what God says to him. Uh, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And then for a few verses, he talks about how God created the world in this majesty and glory and power. And then he says this, the morning stars, who, who are the angels. This is a, a description of angels in scripture. Also, the sons of God is an Old Testament um, word used to describe angels. Here's what he said. When the angels, when the morning star, when, all, when they saw all the power of God on display in creation, here's what they did. The morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Isn't that incredible? I want you, I want you to imagine that you're, you're one of the angels and you have the privilege to watch God maybe kneel down into the dirt and take from this dirt uh, and form shape a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. And I want you to imagine that you look at God as he looks at Adam and Eve. And you see the most proud dad you've ever seen in history. Uh, I want you to imagine, like we use this phrase, like when a, when a son is born, looks just like his dad. Like, oh, he's like, he's like made in your likeness, right? Looks just like you. Imagine when the angels saw Adam and Eve, they said, surely this is the image and likeness of God. It's like a spitting, a spitting image. I mean, imagine uh, you are one of the angels and you see this beautiful world that God formed and then you watch your fallen leader, Satan, trick the beloved of God's creation. You watch as sin enters into their life in this world. Imagine you watch as sin enters creation and for the first time in your existence, you see decay and violence and death 
and you see the very creation that God loves being dismantled before your very eyes. Imagine the beloved of God, Adam and Eve, more special to God than even the angels are. You see that the most precious beings of God are now being infected with this decay, this death, and this violence, and they're actually turning on each other. I mean, could you imagine just for a moment, you see the beloved of God, Adam and Eve, filled with sin, and God in his righteous, just response banishes them, his beloved children, from his presence. I mean, can you imagine this? Like you're watching this series of events, you're watching history unfold, and then you get to Genesis chapter three, and you get to hear the first prophecy, the first promise ever given. Uh, And you know, you you know that whatever this is, this is gonna be a big deal. And here's what Genesis chapter three, verse 15 says. God is cursing the serpent, Satan, and says this, I will put enmity, hostility, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, this offspring, we now know will be Jesus. He shall bruise your head. This is a mortal wound. This is why some versions will say he will crush your head. And the only thing that the serpent, that Lucifer, that Satan is gonna be able to do is nip at his heels. He says, and you, you shall bruise his heel, a a non-mortal wound. And God makes this promise. And at this point, the angels in hell and heaven and humanity are wondering, how is this going to play out? How is God gonna make right this devastating problem, this distance, this enmity, not just between Satan and the woman, but more importantly, between you and me and humanity and God himself? Uh, Here's here's what they know. God said it. God's going to do it. There's some plan that God is putting into place. Uh, In fact, the book of 1 Peter, uh, it's really interesting, gives us this really awesome glimpse into the perspective of the angels. I want to read this for you. 1 Peter 1 says this, it was revealed to the prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you. Speaking of Old Testament prophets, they're giving these prophecies about the future and the plan of God. Uh, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, here's what it says, referencing these prophecies and this plan of God, things into which angels long to look. That all of these prophecies, all these disparate prophecies over millennia are given by God through prophets, through the word, and the angels are even trying to figure out how does all of this come together? God, what's the plan? What are you up to? Because there's a lot going on in this world and it's really, really dark and I'm trying to make sense of how all of this comes together. Here are just a couple of the prophecies that the angels and the prophets and the Bible scholars of the day are all trying to make sense of and to put into an orderly way. You guys know this one, Isaiah 7, 14. Imagine 700 years before Christ, you're trying to make sense of this Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Imagine imagine being an angel and trying to figure out how God incarnate would become a baby. The most glorious, majestic being you could ever plausibly imagine, how that God, Jesus Christ, could plausibly lay aside the privileges of deity and be born a baby. Isaiah 53, 6, you know this, for to us a child is born. Okay, children are born all the time. To us a son is given. The son's different. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Imagine trying to, trying to put all of these disparate prophecies together and to make sense of what is God up to? What is this plan? From the very beginning in Genesis 3, God made a promise that he was gonna make things better, that Satan and his destructive powers would be finished. I mean, Bill Church, let's just talk for a moment. Are we not so spoiled to live on this side of the incarnation, of the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ? I mean, Jesus Christ has given us his word through his apostles. We have his recorded teaching and he brings all of this together for us. So as we look back in retrospect, we're like, of course, you don't know the plan of God. Angels are so clear. Just look at the scriptures. Uh, But for millennia, prophets and angels were longing to understand how all of this was gonna come together, how God was gonna make sense of all of this chaos. How could God sit back and let his most beloved of creation, humanity, rebel against him in such a devastating way? devastating way. And here's what we find. From all of these prophecies, all of these stories, the entire Old Testament, they are all pointing to Jesus. All of the Old Testament is pointing to this day, to this manger, to this stable, to this young 14, 13-year-old girl, to this young man, Joseph, to, this, to these animals, ultimately to Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. All of these prophecies are pushing us to this very moment, to this Christmas day. Now, there's a couple of things you may not know about angels and Christmas day. I wanna share them with you. A lot of misunderstanding, confusion around, I think, um, this whole subject. And uh, so here's one beautiful reality. Did you know that the angels knew Jesus personally before the incarnation? There's this idea in people's brains that Jesus was born and then God sanctioned him with deity and said, you will be God. That's not how it worked. Jesus Christ is eternally preexistent, which means this. He is, was, the commander-in-chief of all of the hosts and armies of heaven. Uh, That when the angels, what they knew of Jesus Christ is they knew the most, most powerful, glorious being they could ever fathom. And somehow, in this incarnation, um, they now saw God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, laying aside some of the privileges of his deity. He was their master, the creator, and now he is seemingly helpless. Number two, the angels, I don't know if you know this, but they love humanity. They love humanity because Jesus loves humanity. Angels were created to serve God and to minister to you. Angels were created to serve God and to minister to you, God's beloved. God has set his heart and affection on his children who trust in Jesus Christ. And the angel's heart and affection is on you as well. And you're gonna see this in Luke 2 in a moment. Number three, the angels knew that our greatest problem was not war, water, starvation, social justice, Uh, The angels have been around for millennia and they are able to see the arc of history play itself out. Uh, The angels of God understand something really profound that it would go well for all of us to remember. They remember, they could go back to the very first rebellion in heaven when Satan himself drew away a third of the angels. I mean, let's be honest. How moronic do you have to be to oppose God? Like, what did you think was gonna happen Satan and all of your minions, when you stood face to face with your glorious creator and walked away. And by the way, who lost? God or Satan and a third of the angels? 
Satan and a third of the angels, that's right. Right? And, then, and then you get into the garden. You get into Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They knew what God wanted. They did the opposite. By the way, who won and who lost? God won. Adam and Eve lost. You look throughout Scripture, through millennia of, of revealed history throughout Scripture, and every time there's a rebellion, who loses? The rebels. And then there are literally millions of stories never penned, never recorded from the beginning of history all the way to the incarnation and birth of Jesus Christ. And here's what we know. The angels see this. Everyone who rebels against God loses. Everybody does. And here's what the angels know. There is something far more dangerous to each one of us in this room than war and water and social justice. There is something far more threatening to us And it is being a rebel against God without forgiveness. It is staying a rebel without being reconciled back to God. They know this. And humanity is so concerned. We just want want a lack of war. We want this. But ultimately, there is a greater threat than all of that to each of us personally. The angels know this. Number four, God seemed to withhold from the angels, demons, the prophets, humanity, the whole story. Like he would give these, again, disparate prophecies, these ideas, these stories, this law, these teachings. But it was interesting because God's people could never quite put the story together in a way that totally made sense. And then we find ourselves uh, at the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, We find ourselves sitting on this first Christmas day, and and we're going to see something. Some gifts are absolutely worth the wait, even though that wait has seemingly been excruciating. And here's what we find. For 400 years before the birth of Christ, before Christmas Day, there was complete and utter silence from God to his people. No prophets, no angels, no new scriptures. The people of God lived in oppression and they were waiting and they were waiting and in this time they had to be wondering, God, are you, are you gonna keep your promise? Are you gonna keep your word? What's your plan? Because we're sitting here suffering and it just feels like you're not at all interested or communicating with us. And then right before the birth of Jesus, angels start popping up everywhere. It's interesting. Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds. Like God is beginning to move again. And this is gonna be one of the most beautiful fulfillments of, 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 history, of, of prophecies. And the plans are finally gonna start coming together. And it brings us to Luke chapter two, verse 10. If you have your Bibles open there, I'll put it on the screen as well. It brings us to the very night that Jesus was born. Answers are gonna start to be given. Things are gonna start to make sense. Hidden prophecies and promises that have been veiled to us are gonna start to become clear. And here's what verse 10 says. It says, and the angel, how many are there right now? The answer, of course, is one. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, who is this good news for? You? But did the angels think this was good news? You better believe it. The angels love humanity because God loves humanity. That the angels have affection and the angels are longing to see how God will redeem his lost people, his broken people, and how God will make right all of this crazy and this chaos. And I love it says, it's gonna be for all the people. It's not just a Jewish Messiah. It is a Messiah for every 
person who has ever lived. There is one God, there is one Savior, there is one Messiah. It doesn't matter what background you come from, what religion you are, there is only one God and his name is Jesus Christ. There is only one way. It says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Verse 12, he goes on and says, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Okay, let's just take a moment and process this. If you're the shepherds, this is news. Like what? The Savior's here? The, these promises are all being fulfilled? What? They know the tip of the iceberg of what God has been up to. They've been around for decades. The angels have been around for millennia. The shepherds barely understand the weight of what is being said. These angels have been longing and waiting and looking with anticipation, waiting for God to move. I want to tell you, as happy as the shepherds might have been, the angels were ecstatic. And then we get to verse 13, 14. Um, What might be, I think, either one of the greatest songs or chants ever in the world. We'll never know until we get there. Verse 13, suddenly... Love this, there is with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. Okay, so in scripture, when someone comes face to face with an angel, what happens to them? They basically almost fall down as dead or they start worshiping the angel because its glory is so amazing. I mean, it's a really scary reality, okay? So you got one angel, which is petrifying enough, and then whenever the Bible says suddenly there is a multitude of angels, like this is shock and awe, like this is a big deal, like this is catastrophic, okay? Like they're falling on their face, like what is happening? This is probably the most unforgettable moment of their entire life. It doesn't say they were singing, although they probably were. Maybe this was like some awesome battle cry chant. Wouldn't that be pretty awesome if that was the case? Uh, and here, here's what they were saying. Suddenly, there's a host of multitude of, of angels dressed in their army regalia. That's literally what host means. It's an army. Uh, heavenly armies, they're praising God, and they say two big things. Number one, glory to God in the highest. Okay, so this is like a cliche phrase. We use, oh, glory to God, or we sing glory to God. It doesn't really mean anything. Angels don't say or sing things that don't mean something, okay? So let me maybe translate what they meant when they said this. God, we've been wondering. We've been looking. I'll be honest, much of history doesn't make sense. I'm trying to figure out where you are and what you're doing, but you know what? You're an utter genius, You've, you've never made a promise and not come through on it. And when I step back and I think of all the plausible ways that you could simultaneously showcase your nature and character, your love, your mercy, your holiness, your righteousness, your justice, uh, when, I, when I look at all of the nature and character of God, and I look at a plan that does not just reveal you, but actually makes right the greatest problem humanity has ever faced. You are an utter genius. You deserve not just glory, but glory upon glory, as much glory, glory to God in the highest, the highest amount of glory that we could plausibly give you. All the acclaim and applause is all yours. 
There is no better plan. In fact, we had ideas about how you were going to make this thing work out. We, had, we, we surmised, well, maybe he's going to do this, and, but it doesn't take into consideration this prophecy. But you are an utter and total genius. And the way you hid it from us, the way you hid it from the demons and from Satan, and you kept everybody on their toes, now it's starting to get clear and clearer. You are an utter genius. And they say, glory to God in the highest. This isn't just a trite phrase that we say or sing. Like, they mean this from the core of their beings. Whatever this is, is awesome. And you deserve all the glory. Then they say a second thing. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Don't be mistaken. The angels did not mean peace being the lack of war. That was not on their brain. They've been around long enough to know there is a far greater threat to humanity than war, starvation, or social injustice. That there is something far more dangerous. And that far more dangerous thing is enmity or hostility with God. Because everyone who rebels against God loses and there's never once in the history of humanity or angels ever been an exception. Here's what they know. You your plan, your strategic genius is actually resolving the greatest dilemma and threat to humanity, the lack of peace and reconciliation with you. Uh, Christmas is a, it's a reminder of a couple things. Number one, uh, that much of life does not make sense. Uh, you're looking around, God, how are you gonna make sense of all this? What are you gonna do with this? If, if I had my way, I would have done this thing very, very different. Um, God, um, where, are, where were you when? Why did you allow blank to happen? How, how can you possibly take all of these things and do something powerful and amazing that showcases your, your glory? And here's what I'm, I'm convinced of because this has been the history of everyone in scripture and every believer that I know that has lived a long time, they're able to look back on their life and able to say, you are an utter and pure genius. And if, and if you didn't get the answers you need by the time you're old and gray and close your eyes for the last time, you'll get to heaven and God will answer some questions. And here's what you will say. I didn't get it. But now that I see this from your perspective, you are so smart. Like I had all these things. If I were God, I would. But every one of my strategies pales in comparison to your strategy. And at Christmas, we remember there's a lot of broken, hurting, and oppressed people, and God at the right time invades human history and begins to bring answers to this. It's also a great reminder that your greatest dilemma in life is not your standard of living, it's not your lack of money, it's not your marriage, it's not your kids, it's not war, it is Jesus Christ, am I reconciled to God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ? Because here, here's the deal. Christmas also tells us something. God keeps his promises. Millennia of prophecies and promises, right, coming to fruition in this first incarnation. But do you know there are more promises yet to be fulfilled? Do you know that if you're an angel, you can look back over the panorama of history, the arc of history, and you could say this, you've never, ever, ever broken a single promise. In fact, uh, surprises us many times how you came through on your word. There's never been a rebel who won. There's never been a promise unkept, right? You always do what you say you're gonna do, but there's a, there's a handful of promises yet to be fulfilled. 
And one of the most important is that Jesus Christ is coming again. That is his promise. And just as surely as he came the first time, he will come a second time. But the second time he comes will not be in humility. It will be in power and in judgment and in justice. And he will display for all of hell and humanity and heaven the fullness of his attributes of God. And you will see in the judgment not just his wrath and his anger, but his love and his mercy and his forgiveness. And there's one thing, and the angels get this, there is one thing that can spare you from the judgment of God on the second coming, and that is faith in Jesus Christ alone. You gotta imagine, if you're an angel, all of these false religions promoted by demons who've rebelled against God or are trying to lead people astray, and here's what you know. They're all fake. There's one way. There's one way which God, his prophets, and the scriptures have constantly come back to, and it's not by being good, It's not all religions are the same and they all ultimately lead to the same place. It's not what the Bible teaches ever. It is Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only means by which somebody can be reconciled back to God as a son or daughter. No longer identified as an enemy, but now adopted heir to everything that is God's. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Then there's this whole set of American lies that just come upon us Good people go to heaven and if you're good enough, if you're better than the really bad person next to you, then God's gonna look with special favor upon you. We know this, right? It's everywhere. It's not what the Bible teaches either. You can never, ever be good enough. In fact, there's no strategy that a human could come up with that could reconcile them back to God that is based on anything other than the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for you and your behalf. And then God enters into history and raises Jesus from the dead, validating and proclaiming to all of the angels, all of the demons, all of humanity, everybody who witnesses this, this is Jesus Christ, the son of God with power, the only means by which anybody may ever be reconciled back to the Father. This is it. Christmas is this beautiful declaration that Jesus Christ did not come so we could have cute stories and lots of presents and everything of the sorts. First and foremost, He came to reconcile us back to God that we might have peace on earth. Not the lack of war, first and foremost, but reconciliation with God. This Christmas, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, may you savor God's love for you. May you you savor that God looks at you if you've trusted in Christ as a beloved son or daughter, the way he looked at Adam and Eve when he first made them. May you savor that you have a God who literally gave his first son, his firstborn, who poured out his just and righteous anger at your sin on Jesus. May you savor the fact that Jesus willingly went to the cross for you. May you remember he is coming back and there is no escaping the second judgment yet except through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Village Church, if you've trusted in Jesus, we are so blessed and we get to live on this side of the incarnation. Uh, many of you are here and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ. And I, I, wanna, I just wanna say, I'm so glad you're here, first of all. Um, many of you, you got drugged here by your parents or your friends or your neighbor or your wife or your husband. And uh, I'm just so grateful that you came. And uh, here's, here's my, my desire for you. Let me, let me give you the benefit of the doubt for a moment. Benefit of the doubt is that if Jesus Christ showed up here today and showed himself to be God and proved it to you that you would worship him, benefit of the doubt. Here's my prayer for you. May God reveal to you the truth, the beauty, 
and the glory of Jesus Christ. May he give you eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to believe, faith that you might trust in Jesus Christ. Because if the scriptures are true, then there is no other way. So in, in a moment, we're actually gonna have a bunch of kids come in and join us. It's gonna be a blast. Don't worry, they will not have candles that light fire. They have LED candles. It's gonna be fine. Uh, they're gonna come in with us and we're going to sing and worship together. But um, the first song we're gonna sing is a hymn written by Charles Wesley in the 18th century. And the hymn is called Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It's a hymn of anticipation and longing. But here's the, the last half of the first verse. I wanna, I wanna read this to you. Here's what he says. Israel's strength and consolation. Hope of all the earth thou art. In dear desire of every nation. This is, this is the part I wanna draw your attention to. Joy of every longing heart. You may not know this, but Charles Wesley was profoundly influenced by a 17th century philosopher named Blaise Pascal. And Blaise Pascal wrote something that this verse was built off of. And here's what Blaise Pascal wrote. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the creator. I'd like to take a moment I wanna to pray together and I wanna to thank God together that he has given us that for which our hearts have most powerfully longed, redemption, peace with God, and ultimately, God himself. Let's pray together. Father, on this side of the cross, we declare that your plan of salvation is indeed glorious. We could not do better. Somehow in your infinite wisdom and genius, you curated a plan that would display your nature and your character, that would preserve justice and all at the same time reconcile us back to yourself. Father, as the angels and the prophets long to understand what you are up to, thank you for revealing at the right time, at the right place through your word, your plan of redemption and reconciliation. We agree with the angels and we say glory to God in the highest. Father, over the next 36 hours, we have the privilege to celebrate you and your plan with gifts and lights and food and family and so many other symbols, but may you draw our hearts to Jesus. May you draw us to remember the first incarnation. And would you prepare us for the second coming, which will surely come because you have never once broken a promise. Father, Son, and Spirit, we worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.